Amen. Thank you, choir. Man, it sounded great. It sounded like you mean it when you say Jesus paid it all. It sounds like you actually believe that. Amen. Thank you guys for leading us in worship today. I'm excited today uh, to follow up on a great message we heard last week from Reverend Evan Coons. He's not Reverend yet. We're going to ordain him uh, soon. But Evan did a great job with a difficult passage. That passage, as he said, was tricky because there's no real obvious application. There's no real action steps that you walk away with. Evan, instead of, of having us write down, here's what you should do, he challenged you just to think on the greatness of God and who God is. We're going to continue that theme today in Isaiah chapter 41. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 41. You know, my kids, uh, they, they, people say the uh, days are long, but the years are short. You heard that before? That's very true uh, when you have small children. And uh, I already miss uh, the, those days when our kids were smaller. Uh, we were at my uh, in-law's house uh, this weekend, and uh, they have a, a, a nice saltwater pool now in front of their house. And, uh, you know, my kids are like fish now. They just swim and they're, they're really good swimmers, made the swim team this year, and uh, they're, they're very confident. And our youngest, Isaiah, who's five, he swam the entire length of the pool, which is great, right? But I, as a dad, missed those days when, you know, they were two or three and would stand on the edge of the pool. Y'all know what I'm talking about, dads. And you would coax them to, to jump, and you'd put your hands out and say, come on, bud, come on, jump in. And, and they would throw themselves in with reckless abandoned because they knew that as their dad, I've proven that I care for them and that I am trustworthy and that I will catch them when they jump. As a father, they knew they could hurl themselves towards me and trust that I'm not going to let anything bad happen to them, but that I'm going to take care of them. That's the picture that we're getting in Isaiah of who our heavenly father is. He's a good, good father whom we can recklessly abandon ourselves to. We can leap into his arms because he has proven over and over that he is to be trusted, that he is powerful enough. So we're gonna continue this theme of, of comfort for exiles, people who find themselves in a strange land as slaves, as property that have been carried off into Babylon, the Lord speaks words of comfort. And nothing could be more comforting to people in exile than this. A good, good father loves you and is able to take care of you and will take care of you. You know, uh, Isaiah is speaking these words of comfort and reassurance about who our father is. This whole section through chapter 42 is really these words of comfort for these people who find themselves in a terrible situation. Again, Isaiah is looking forward uh, about 100 years from his own time to a time when God's people would find themselves uh, in exile as slaves. Into this context, God promises in, in chapter 40 that he will show up, that he will reveal his glory not just to them, but to the whole world. He promises that he'll bring justice. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain brought low. Justice will be done. A rescuer will come. God himself will send his servant. We're going to get to chapter 43. I can't wait. 
to talk about the servant who's going to come to rescue. And the whole world's going to see it. And then he guarantees these promises by reminding his people of who he is, of what his nature is, of, of what his essence is. That may sound like typical church talk to you. We're going to talk about who God is again today. And you may, like Evan said last week, you may not find that very compelling. But I want to challenge you to, to really think about the implications for how we see God. Was it A.W. Tozer, I think, who said the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. I think today we're going to hopefully have a bigger, grander, more glorious picture of who God is when we conceive of God. And the implications for knowing God as the greatest good, as the foundational ultimate glory in all of the cosmos, has huge implications for our world. It actually changes things. It has to. You know, there's been a lot of philosophers and sociologists who've recently written about how we now live in what they call a secular age, meaning civilizations, for the first time in the history of the world, are building their cultures, building their societies on secular grounds. There is no supernatural authority or basis for society now in Europe and increasingly so in North America and places like Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, Christianity is actually thriving and doing great. They're gonna send missionaries, they already have, already are, sending missionaries here to help us struggling Christians out. But in a secular age, people are all of a sudden scrambling to make sense of, of life, to make sense of things. What is the foundation? They're looking for a firm foundation on which to build their lives. In a secular age, you know, ultimate truth claims are often met with skepticism or indifference. People don't really want to hear ultimate truth claims, but everybody makes them. <laughs> and so instead of giving ourselves over to one great truth, what our society would tell us in a secular age is instead of giving yourself over to one thing, we should just tolerate everything, right? Tolerate everything. There's a brilliant British essayist and she wrote crime novels uh, about a hundred years ago in England named Dorothy Sayers. She was a Christian and kind of a theologian as well. She wrote this, think about a hundred years ago almost. She wrote this about 90 years ago. In the world, it is called tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. The sin that believes nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. That's called despair, not tolerance. What is it that you'll give your life to? What is it that you'll give your life for? Only something so compelling can bring meaning and purpose to our lives. Into this despairing culture, Isaiah, the prophet, steps in and says what the psalmist says in Psalm 115, 
verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is sovereign. Our God is the ultimate foundation for reality and truth. Our God is in charge of everything. He made all this. He controls all this. And he's working all of this together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's bringing all of this to a good place through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That truth changes everything. It has to. So let's listen with the, the ears of our hearts today to Isaiah chapter 41 and see if we really trust who God is enough to throw ourselves into the deep end with him, to enjoy the fellowship with our good, good father splashing around in the deep end, knowing that he's going to take care of us, that he's not ultimately going to let any evil befall us. We don't have to fear evil in this world. Yes, you will have tribulation, but take heart. He has overcome the world. God's going to tell us here uh, some guarantees. Do you trust his promises? We're going to see the guarantees. I had to look it up. Do you remember that old Cajun chef? This is, this is older than me, okay? I, I, I've seen some YouTube videos named Justin Wilson, and he used to, he had a catchphrase. Remember this? What was his catchphrase? I I guarantee, that's it, I guarantee. He would say that all the time, I guarantee. That's what God's saying to us here, I guarantee. He's giving us guarantees. His promises are true. He's saying, I guarantee, you can trust me. You know what a guarantee is? A guarantee is a promise, a promise that certain conditions will be met. God guarantees four things to us today in this text. First off, we're gonna see that God guarantees that he rules the world, that he's in charge. Look at Isaiah chapter 41, verses one to four. Listen to me in silence. Man, that's hard for me. I'm a talker, I'm an extrovert. God says, just be quiet. <laughs> Listen to me. O coastlands, let the peoples, the Gentiles, renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning of all time, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God is inviting the Gentile nations, the coastlands, the people across the seas to come and reason together. He's inviting them to a theological discussion. Our God is not the God who says, you guys are puny and pathetic. I'm coming to squash you all. He says, no, let's, let's come and talk about this. Let's debate. Let's have an honest discussion. That's who our God is. He's a gracious God who genuinely wants us to consider what is right, what is true, what is good. And let's remember, too, that God has a heart for the nations. God isn't doing all of this for Woodmont Baptist Church. God's not doing all of this for America. God's doing this for the world. God so loved the world. 
We need to keep a global perspective because God has a global perspective. God has a heart for the nations. You know, if you're like me, we, we tend to put blinders on and have a very narrow focus of the kingdom of God and the scope of God's kingdom. We forget that all nations, all tribes, all tongues are full of people made equally in God's image and will one day come together to worship him around the throne together. God desires to save Americans, yes, but he also desires to save Indonesians, Belgians, Iraqis, Somalians, Russians, Ugandans, Greeks, and Australians, every nation, tribe, and tongue. He just told us in chapter 40 how all flesh would see his glory together. His work is global in, in scope, and ours should be too. What, what does he invite the nations to discuss? He says, who, who's in charge? Who really rules the world? Who makes history go? Is there any underlying force that's driving things in the world? And if so, what is that force? He says, I'm the one who stirs up rulers. I'm the one who stirred up this conqueror who comes across the nations, who sweeps them down as he goes. He raises up leaders. God does this in order to accomplish his good plans for the world. Here, Isaiah's prophesying about one from the east who will come. And some commentators say that's Cyrus the Great. Some say it was Abraham, even from Ur of the, the Chaldeans, and that Abraham uh, was, was this force that was unstoppable. It really doesn't matter. The point is that God rules the world. He's the one who's making all things new through his mighty acts of raising up nations or destroying nations. You know, the summer after I graduated high school, I had a cool job. I thought it was a pretty cool job. I was a runner at a law firm. Uh, I won't say which one, because you'll know which one it was uh, downtown on Union Street. And I uh, had a great time with three other buddies that were runners, but we had a lot of downtime. We had time where, uh, you know, in between where lawyers weren't giving us documents to go to take to the courthouse or whatever. So we sat in this room together and one of them brought the board game Risk. You ever play Risk before? It's, I think the, the, the tagline used to say the game of global domination or something like that. I think now it's been changed to be more PC. It's like a game of strategic advancement or something like that, but it's not, it's not global domination anymore. But it's fun because you get to, you know, move your armies into Asia and try to take over Asia. Or you try to, you know, take over South America and you, you move your armies strategically and you take over the world. It's fun to play dictator, I guess. I don't know. It's <laughs> probably some sinful part of me that enjoyed that too much. But here's the thing. There have been people in this world who have tried to take over the world and none of them have come close. Alexander the Great, Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, Xerxes, Julius Caesar. You can make a case that these guys conquered a lot of the known world. That may be true, but none of them lasted. And that Roman Empire fell in the 400s. And look at the church today. Look at the Christian church. Our God is the one who's pulling the strings behind all of it. So how do the nations respond to that news that God rules the world? Look at verses five through seven. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. 
The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. The people of the world scramble. They see that God is the one who rules the cosmos. God's the one who's ultimately sovereign over everything. And they say, yeah, get some nails. Let's reinforce our idols. Let's try to make our idols more lasting and more important. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. When confronted with the reality of God, they simply try harder to band together and to keep spinning their wheels in order to to hold on to their idols instead of surrendering to the one who is ultimately in charge of it all. It's pathetic. Alec Motyer, the commentary uh, author, points out the futility in all of this effort. The product cannot exceed its source. The product cannot exceed its source. Human skill, human approval, human stability, humankind's gods are only projections of humankind's weakness. Our gods are all weak because we are weak. The product cannot exceed the source. When we have a source of living water, we have something that no human creation can match. You know, some of us are all tempted actually to do this kind of thing. You may say, yeah, that's pathetic, those pagan people. But we're tempted to trust in the things of man. You know, we, we think if we'll only work hard enough, if only we'll try harder, if only, you know, that lottery ticket would hit, if only I can do better next time, if only I'll follow all the rules and, and obtain all the right things, then... I can make my life mean something. No, the product will never exceed the source. If you want a life that's bigger than yourself, then try submitting to the one who is over all and in all and through all. Okay, the second guarantee that we see in this passage, victory for the underdog. I like this. He's going to grant victory to the underdog. Look at verse uh, 8, 8 through 9. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, well, we're going to look, you are my servant, and I've chosen you and not cast you off. The word for servant here in Hebrew means slave. He's saying, look, my people, Jacob, you're, you're my slave, really. You're just a slave, right? You're facing some overwhelming uh, obstacles, but you're just a slave, not of their own choosing, but to Almighty God. But what the irony is, is that they find themselves as slaves in Babylon now, to a pagan people in a pagan land. You know, slaves aren't very powerful, right? They have no authority. But what matters is who owns the slaves? Who's the true master of these slaves? Look at verse 10 a promise, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You may have heard that before, how firm a foundation 
you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give you aid. And I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. We know we live in a fallen world, right? Just look at the newspaper. We live in a world that's broken. It's filled filled with violence, injustice, sickness, greed, oppression, ruthless politics. The odds seem overwhelming to us. There are very many real and present dangers out there in the world. How can God's people possibly prevail? Because we belong to him and he will never forsake us. Keep going, look at verses 11 to 13. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. This is the God, remember, who, when the mighty Assyrian army showed up in overwhelming force at Jerusalem, he went out and killed 185,000 of their soldiers, and they went limping back to Assyria. He said, I can do that again. The Babylonians are no big deal. I am the Lord your God. It's an incredible victory for a puny servant, for a slave to overcome one of the mightiest forces in the world. I love sports. I love underdog stories. I've used this before, but it's such a good one. 2004, one of the coolest NBA finals ever. You had this ragtag group of Detroit Pistons, little skinny Tayshawn Prince from Kentucky. And then you had Rip Hamilton, who broke his nose, I think, three times in the same season. He had to wear the mask. Ben Wallace, who couldn't shoot a free throw to save his life. Uh, You had Rasheed Wallace, who led the league in technical fouls because he was such a hothead. And you had Larry Brown, this nerdy little coach trying to hold it all together. And it it was a mess. It was a mess. But somehow they made it to the NBA Finals against a group of Hall of Famers. The Lakers that year were dominant. They had the best league and the, re- the best record in the league. And they had four, they started four Hall of Famers, Kobe, Shaq. They also had Gary Payton, the glove, defense. And they had Carl Malone, remember that? The mailman, all on the Lakers. They were stacked against this team of Pistons who just played hard. They had no real superstars unless you count Chauncey Billups, who at the time was not a superstar. But they beat them in five games, four to one. They held the Lakers to less than 82 points a game on average. How? Because they were underdogs and they had grit and they had fight and shocked the world. No one thought they could do it. When Christians overcome the world, it's not through political power. It's not through more finances. It's not through more influence in the public square. It's through the subversive working of the Holy Spirit that works in such a way that the world says, how is that possible? How is that possible? That's how God works. The underdog wins. 
The third thing, God guarantees transformation for the powerless. This is kind of an amusing little section here. Look at verses 14 to 16. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. In case you didn't get it when he said you're a slave, now he's saying you're a worm. You men of Israel, I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I shall make of you a threshing sledge. You know what that is? Probably not. I had to look it up. It's a board, a big, huge board with sharp rocks embedded in it that they would drag, usually with mules, across the grain in order to chop it up. It was a devastatingly big, effective, powerful tool. New and sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh not the grain, the mountains, and crush them. And you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the winds shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. God says, you're just a worm, but I'm going to transform you into something powerful and effective that you're going to sledge across the mountains and break them down into dust that's going to be blown away. That's what I'm going to do for you as your Redeemer, the Lord God, who can do that. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Paul tells us later in the New Testament that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. What can possibly prevail against God's kingdom? I love that study we did in Acts a couple years ago. The whole story of Acts is like the 2004 Pistons. It's this ragtag group of uneducated Hebrew school dropouts, these fishermen and a tax collector and a bunch of, you know, just losers that God says, watch this. And he breathes the Holy Spirit into them. And they become an unstoppable force that plants a church that now numbers over 2 billion people currently in the world. How? Through human might? No. Through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel message working subversively in the world. If God is for us, no one can be against us. Fourth and finally, God guarantees to meet our every need. We have very real needs, and our good Father knows that, and he meets us where we are. Look at verses 17 to 18. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. The God of Israel will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness, that word is also the word for desert, a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. Remember when the Israelites were marching around, uh, wandering in the wilderness after they fled Egypt and they were thirsty, they, how did they handle that? What did they do? Did they cry out to God? God, please give us water. No, they whined. They grumbled. They complained. Anybody here prone to grumbling? I am. In our house, we, we quote Philippians 2.14 a lot, do everything without arguing or complaining. We have to preach that to myself as well. I can get very cynical. But what does Moses do? Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord opens rivers of living water. In John chapter 7, Jesus told us, I am the living water. Whoever comes to me shall never thirst. Remember that? That's who our God is. He is a good father who delights in giving his children what they need. What else do they need in the desert? They need shade. Look at verse 19. 
I'll put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. Those are shade trees. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God lavishes his grace on us and he gets the glory. We get the grace, God gets the glory. It's a beautiful thing. The, the two things that we need the most, God says, here you go. And he is glorified because when God gives us those good things, people see, people know that he is a good God and that he's in charge. The world looks at how the church has not only survived in the midst of persecution, but thrived in the midst of persecution. And it shakes its head and says, how did they do it? These Christians, they don't have a lot of political capital. Some would argue that they do in America still. How do they do it? They're not real bright. <laughs> I'm certainly not. I'm not a scholar. I'm not wealthy. But when we let God do more through us than we could ever ask or imagine, the world takes notice and God is glorified. The question then is, do we trust these guarantees? Do we really believe that God can deliver on these promises that he has guaranteed to us, his children? Do we trust that God alone rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love? Do we believe that he loves to grant victory to the underdog? As cool as the Pistons being the Lakers were, how much cooler when the lowly church prevails over the powerful world? Do we believe that God loves to grant victory to the underdog, that he upholds us by his omnipotent hand? Do we believe that he transforms us powerless worms into mountain-crushing machines, that through his Holy Spirit we have power, infinite power? And do we believe his guarantee to give us what we really need when we really need it? We have several people in this church who have had a tough time last year who've lost their jobs, who didn't know where their next check would come from. And yet the Lord showed up right on time. He knows where you are. He knows your situation. He knows what time it is. And he operates outside of space and time. Those were his creations. And he will take care of you. He will supply your every need. If we'll trust these guarantees, if we will throw ourselves into the deep end, trusting that he will catch us and that we will find an abundant life of fellowship with our heavenly father who is a good, good father. Will you trust him today? Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you promise us not only that your glory will be revealed and that all flesh will see it, but you promise that you are a good father whom we can trust, on whom we can bet everything, on whom we can build our lives because you are a firm foundation. God, we thank you that you uphold us both as individuals and as a church by your omnipotent hand. We thank you that no earthly power is a threat to you. 
that you are not threatened by anything that we're scared of. God, help us to remember that you've given us your Holy Spirit. And therefore, the spirit that we have is not one of fear or timidity, but one of power and love and self-control. God, I pray that you would empower us again by helping us to to quit relying on the things of this world because the the product never exceeds the source. Help us learn more fully to trust you, to lean on you for everything. Because when we do, God, we find that abundant life, the joy that comes through walking by faith and not by sight and seeing how at every turn you provide. Lord, as we look to the next 80 years of our church's future, as we're about to celebrate 80 years of Woodmont's life, help us to remember that it's only by your grace that we've come this far, and it will only be by your grace that we continue. God, I pray that you would give us a passion for who you are. Help us to be so in awe of you, so in love with you, so in awe of your words, so in love with your words, so in awe of your ways, so in love with your ways, that we would be conformed to your very image, that we would learn to walk as Jesus walked, and that in doing so, we will see you do more than we could ever ask or imagine. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus for the very first time. You've never taken that leap. You realize that you've been living for things that are made by human hands and you realize they're not compelling. You're ready to to quit a life of tolerance where you really have given your life to nothing and you're ready to give your life to the one true holy God of the universe. If you're ready to do that today, I'll be here to talk to you. Maybe you say, "I, I want in on what Woodmont's doing. I want to be a part of what Woodmont's doing. I want to join this family of faith. We're not a perfect family. We come from all different walks of life. We have young and old and everything in between. But we are a family on a journey that God has put us on. We've been here for 80 years, and I can't wait to see where God's going to take us in the next 80 years. If you want to be a part of it as a member of Woodmont, then I'll be here to talk to you about that. Whatever it is that you need to respond to the Lord in your heart today, maybe you just have not been trusting him and you realize I need to trust him today fully. Uh, Whatever it is you need to respond, I pray you will do so now at this time. Let's stand and sing our hymn of response.